Jesus didn't tell his followers to build buildings or raise money. He told us to make disciples. What if the church is failing at that in America? What if in all our efforts we've lost sight of Jesus? Well, we don't have to rely on our opinions to know how the U.S. church is doing. Dozens of existing studies prove beyond doubt that the church in the United States is declining. Gather all the facts and a clear picture emerges. In the next 20 years, we will witness an implosion and disintegration of the American church. The church is declining because the outside culture is changing faster than even it realizes. And as this storm builds outside, the church is also weakening inside. Our kids are quitting the faith. Our evangelism efforts are failing. Our funds are declining. And around the world, on other continents, the church is growing. But our church, the richest in world history, is shrinking. American Christians now make up just one-fifth of the worldwide body of Christ, and yet we hold four-fifths of our wealth. And somehow, we spend almost all of it on ourselves. Do we really think God gave us 80% of his church's wealth so we could spend it all on ourselves? We've fallen into a dollar-centric, Americanized deformity of the gospel. In our insistence on running Christ Church like a Walmart or a McDonald's, our obsession with dollars and comfort and convenience is costing us. Jesus promised that he would build his church, but he didn't promise to use American methods. The facts about the decline of the American church force us to answer a question. Are we more committed to Christ or to American Christianity as we know it? Aren't you glad you came to church today? (laughs) Well, for those of you who are guests, I promise this is not typical, but it's important. My name is Josh. I'm one of the ministers here, and if this is your first time, welcome. If you're joining us online for the first time, don't turn off yet. I promise. It's going to get better here. We're so glad that you're a part of our gathering today. It is good to see so many faces. In fact, before we do anything else, go ahead, just pause. Look around, look at the smiling masks around you, or the smiling eyes. Isn't it good to see so many friends and family together today? Man, I just love it, I love it, I love it. And over the next month, you're going to see us uh, beginning to open up some additional things. We'll tell you more about that in the coming weeks, but just really, really excited about what we're going to be up to here over the next few months. Before we get into uh, the meat of today's teaching, I kind of want to set it up this way. Last month, over the course of the first few weeks of the year, we looked at this idea of taking the land, taking the land that God has in store for his people, land to take, new areas for us to step into. And we talked all about that through the life and ministry of Joshua from the Old Testament book of Joshua. But before we can step into things, we also need to sort of pause and consider where we really are. How many of us know that if you want to get your financial house in order, you need to first know how your finances are doing. Am I right? Uh, How many of us know that if we want to get our health in order, we kind of need to know where we are already with our health? Have you been there? If you want to establish better rhythms as a person or in your marriage or relationships, you first have to establish where you are already. And the same is true as a church. Before we can take additional land, we need to pause and consider where are we really? 
And so that's what the course of this teaching series is going to be. It's a look at where we are, really. And so today we begin this series called The Disappearing Church. Where we're headed and God's plan to turn it around. Where we're headed and God's plan to turn it around. If you're a guest, welcome. We're going to be getting some stuff that may not apply to you at first, you'll think. But I believe every week we're going to come around to something that will apply to your life as well if you'll stick with us. Now, a little backstory on this teaching. A number of months ago, I was watching a teaching by a preacher that I very greatly respect. And as part of the message, they played the video we just saw this morning. Now, they didn't produce it. We didn't produce it. Rather, that video was a trailer for a book that came out a number of years ago. In fact, in 2013, this book called... The Great Evangelical Recession, Six Factors That Will Crash the American Church as We Know It, and How to Prepare, by John S. Dickerson. Now, I want to be real clear. If you've been around Clear Creek for any length of time, you know we are not a doom and gloom church. We are not predicting the end of the world or the end of the church next week. Uh, We're not that pessimistic about life or about what's going on. And what's interesting is the author of this book, Dickerson, is not a doom and gloom kind of guy. In fact, here's a picture of the author. Does he look like a doom and gloom kind of guy? And he's like, hey, everybody, life's good. Things are great. I mean, he is not that kind of guy. He is an investigative reporter turned senior pastor of a church. He is a guy who gets into the nitty-gritty research. In fact, he has written pieces for a number of well-known outlets, including USA Today, CNN, the New York Times, and the Washington Post. And he is no slouch when it comes to research or looking at trends. He's a guy who knows his stuff. And he's not mad at the church. That's not why he wrote this book. In fact, he loves the church. He's a minister in the church. Rather, rather. He loves the bride of Christ, but he saw some trends that were concerning so much that he wrote a book about it. He was concerned about it. And he's not the only one. In fact, there are many others who are seeing trends that are concerning. Have you guys heard of Dallas Theological Seminary? It is a conservative evangelical seminary in Dallas. They had Dickerson in to speak. They've had him on their podcast. They've really engaged with what he's teaching because they also are seeing some negative trends. In fact, the president of the Phoenix University, or Phoenix Seminary rather, they have written a foreword to this book as well. And Larry Osborne, he's the, uh, one of the ministers at a massive multi-site church that is growing very quickly, reaching the unreached, not other Christians, but people who don't know Jesus, And he says that these are trends that we need to pay attention to. And so I picked up the book. I read it. And I was fascinated by a lot of the trends, a lot of the research that I saw within it. And I think it's something that we as a church, if our goal, if our mission is to reach the next person for Jesus, then we need to be honest about where we are so we can step into where God is taking us. And so what I want to do over the next few weeks is he has six factors. We're not going to look at six. We're only going to look at four. But over the course of these next four weeks, I want to take some of the content, what he talks about in the book, and I want to present it through sort of my lens, through the lens of this church, and help us to prepare for where God may be taking us as a church, to be more aware of what's going on, to look honestly at the facts so we can move forward into the future that God is calling us. So are you guys ready to look at some of the facts, some of the truth about where we are as a church? I know, I know. Listen, listen. If you're nervous about this, you don't need to be nervous about the truth. Because it was our Savior who said, the truth will set you what? Free. And so we're going to look at it. 
So, first factor, factor number one, if you are taking notes, write this down. Factor number one is simply this. The evangelical church, and we'll explain what evangelical means, the evangelical church in the United States is much smaller than we've been told. The evangelical church is declining in almost every state in America. Now you say evangelical, what does that word even mean? What are we talking about? Well, I'm using that word to differentiate or distinguish between what you and I, what many of us believe, and what the vast majority of Americans believe, because the vast majority of Americans will say things like, well, I'm a Christian because I'm an American. And that's, that, that's not exactly what we're getting at, is it? Because following Christ is more than where you are born. Can I get an oh yeah from anyone? And so, evangelical, here's, here's sort of the idea to kind of take with you. Evangelical is a set of beliefs. It is simply the core beliefs of the traditional view of Scripture. So, for instance, an evangelical will believe that you're saved by grace alone, through Christ alone, faith alone, right? They will believe, we will believe, that there's only one way to the Father, and that way is who? Yes, Jesus Christ. You don't get to the Father. You don't get to heaven any other way except for Jesus. And evangelicals believe that the Bible, the whole Bible, all 66 books are inspired and authoritative. That is an evangelical. And that's what we're talking about here. So the question then is, okay, so Josh, we now know what an evangelical is. How big is the American church? I mean, how large are we talking here? So someone says, okay, ooh, I, I know, I know. Uh, some of you might guess how big it is. And some of you, go ahead and put this up. Some of you might say, well, I think that we are 80%, right? Because you read the 2010 census that said 80% of Americans identify as Christian. And you're like, we're 80%, right, Josh? Now, if, if I were, I'm not going to, but if I were to ask you to raise your hand, uh, I doubt that most of you would agree that eight out of every ten Americans is an evangelical as we just described it. It probably wouldn't agree with that, right? So some of you say, okay, okay, it's not 80%. It's not 80%. Okay, I know. Someone else goes, I, I got it. And you go, yes, what is it? Okay, I think it's 40%, right? It's going to be 40% because I saw somewhere else that it said that 40% of Americans consider themselves born again. You hear that term sometimes, born again. Well, again, it's not even 40%. In fact, if you wanted to, think of it this way. If you went across the United States, if you went uh, to California, all the way to Maine, and you visited every Walmart from California to Maine, and you talk to every patron of every Walmart, and you ask them, do you believe that Jesus is God's son and the only way to the Father and the Bible is inerrant and the Bible is authoritative? Do you believe that? Do you think 40% would say yes? No, it wouldn't even be 40%. Other people say, okay, okay, if it's not 80, if it's not 40, I, I bet it's 20%, right, Josh? 20%, that's how many people are Christian. It's not even 20%. Let me give you some stats here. Four different research pieces from four different independent, well-respected researchers. Here's the information. First one. This is a study done by a respected sociologist named Christian Smith. He's a professor at Notre Dame, and he holds a Ph.D. from Harvard. Smart dude. He employed academically rigorous methodology to reach his conclusion, here you go now, that about 20 million Americans identify with the evangelical movement. 20 million. Compare that to the population at the time of his writing, and that would be about 7% of the United States is evangelical, 7%. 
Okay, second study by a man named David Olson. He's with the American Church Research Project. He concludes that 8.9% of Americans attend evangelical church services. So he's a little higher. 7%, 8.9% is what he's now saying. Quoting him in his research, he says, In reality, the church in America is not booming. It's in crisis. On any given Sunday, the vast majority of Americans are absent from church. Even more troublesome is the American population continues to grow, but the church falls further and further behind. That's David Olson. Number three, this is the Barna Group. Some of you have heard of George Barna and the Barna Group. They are some of the most sophisticated and respected auditors of evangelicals in the world. They've been studying evangelical Christians for decades, and they saw According to their information, about 7% of Americans are evangelical. So, you've got 7%, 8.9%, 7%. Fourth study by a woman named Christine Wicker. She is an award-winning religion reporter. She's a mainstream journalist, hear me now, and she is not an evangelical. So she is not one of the people that we're even talking about here. But she says, she says, she spent years reporting on and measuring the size of the evangelical church And she's concluded that about 7% of Americans are evangelical. I'm quoting her and her research with this statement. She says, A small and declining group of people has been portrayed as tremendously powerful and growing so rapidly that they might take over the country. When in fact, the number of converts in this group is down and dropping. They are rarely able to convert. Hear this now. An adult, middle-class American. Their share of the American population is not 25%, but at most 7% of the country and following. All of these numbers, she says, comes from the churches themselves. Here's what I want you to hear. Four independent measures, but one conclusion. That the American evangelical church is not 80%, not 40%, not 20%, not 10%, but it is somewhere between 7 to 8.9% or 20 to 30 million at the time of this writing. What? Now, that's not the picture I was always told. Maybe it was for you. Maybe, you, maybe you've always kind of had this picture of a big, big, big church, and, but that's, that's not the picture of reality and where we are. In fact... If you're sort of like, no, 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 it can't be, just, just take your own hometown, or, or in our case, take Chattanooga. And, and I'm something of, uh, I'm sort of familiar with the churches here in Chattanooga, and, and I try to figure out our numbers. Our numbers should be somewhere between 5 and 10% according to this national study and all the information. And so I tried, I tried to figure it out, and I got to tell you, I couldn't even get Chattanooga, the buckle of the Bible belt, above 10% of our city. Now, as we've said before, If the buckle of the Bible belt doesn't even have this much, no wonder the pants of the United States have fallen down. So, so, so what do we do with this? What's, what, what are our thoughts? Now, the reality is, as we have overestimated our size, we have sometimes done some things that are kind of embarrassing. Let me give you one. In the year 2000, a group of evangelical church leaders approached Disney... And they said, we're going to boycott you for a variety of things that you're doing that we don't like. And, and, and we represent a massive group of people, millions and millions and millions strong. Now, this boycott of Disney lasted for eight years. At the end of the eight years, this group of people went back to Disney. But what happened in Disney during that time? 
in the eight-year period, Disney's profits and stock value almost doubled. And so this group comes back in eight years and they say to Disney, we're going to keep an eye on you. And Disney's like, please do. It's been awesome for us. So here's a way to sort of think about it. If you want a picture, think of an election map. You know an election map. So you've got the United States here. Go ahead and put this up. You've got the United States. Here's a way to think of this. Think of the country, uh, non-evangelical is sort of this uh, blue-gray color, okay? Non-evangelical. And red being evangelical, okay? So if we were to take the states that are evangelical, would, would we say 80% are evangelical and paint it 80% evangelical? Would we say 40% and 40%? I want you in your mind to get sort of a picture of this. I want you to paint in your mind the state of New York. Because New York has roughly 20 million people in it. And that represents the number of evangelicals to the whole United States. Are you tracking with me here? Now, now, here's the thing, here's the thing. As soon as we talk about this, here's the thing. Many of us, we get very concerned. In fact, we go, oh no, not only are we small, we're shrinking. What do we do? Abandon hope, oh no. Is that the right response, family? No, no. I want to tell you what we do. See, I think it is very, very, very easy for some of us to see this and it become discouraging and depressing, but I want you to know something. It is not depressing to be weak, at least not according to the Apostle Paul. If you have your Bible, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. I want to show you a passage from this familiar passage here already. 2 Corinthians chapter 12, beginning in verse 8. Paul writing this says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. What's it? What's it? What's he talking about? Well, maybe he was sick or maybe he had bad eyesight. We don't know exactly, but he had some sort of thorn in the flesh. You remember that phrase, a thorn in the flesh? And so he asks Jesus, hey, take it away, Jesus. And I love what Jesus says. Jesus responds, he says, My grace... It's sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in, say this word out loud with me, church, in weakness. He goes on to say this, therefore I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. That is why for Christ's sake I delight in weaknesses, in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, for when I am weak, then I am Strong Paul, the hero of the faith, the man who wrote half of the New Testament, looks at his weak state and he does not despair. He revels because he sees that when he is weak, God's great power is seen in ways that otherwise would never be seen. Paul sees weakness not as a limiting factor, but one that releases the power of God. In my opinion, church, if we as the American church, as the church here at Clear Creek, if we want to see God's move, we've got to get over ourselves. We have to get to a point where we will admit that I'm weak, that you're weak, that we're weak, that we can't do this on our own, that smarter people... Richer people, more athletic people, people with greater abilities and connections, that's not going to fix the problem. The problem cannot be fixed by you and me because we are weak. Rather, rather, listen, listen, I believe that all this changes when the American church and when preachers and when people say, 
We are weak apart from God. By the way, side note. Some of you going, I'm not even worried about other people out there because I got so much stuff going on in here. Let me just give you a side note. Listen, if you're feeling weak in your marriage right now, that's a great place to be because it may drive you to your knees in prayer. If you're feeling weak because of your children, you're just begging God, I've got a child who doesn't seem to have any desire to lean in your direction. I'm doing what I can do. This is a great place to be because it will drive you to your knees in prayer. I think about so many of us, we're worried about the world around us and it is a great place to be to be weak because it'll drive us to our knees in prayer because when we are a weak church, then we get to see just how strong our God is. And he's big enough to deal with anything personal, public, anything. He's a big God. I love what Dickerson says. He goes on to write this. He says, we do well to acknowledge that we are weak as a national church. We do well to see that we do not have it all figured out. We do well to accept the rips in the fabric of evangelicalism. We do well to swallow the thick truth that many of our best efforts are not only failing, but actually backfiring. We do well to see our weakness so that we can come to him who invites the weary and burdened to fall into his arms. Jesus' invitation for tired laborers applies to all of us when Jesus said these words, Come to me, all of you who are tired from carrying heavy loads, and I will give you rest. Do you guys remember the early church in Acts chapter 1? Do you remember this small band They were weak, they were outcast, they were scared, they didn't know what to do. And you got to think about it, just think with me for a moment about this group. We read about it and saw the reading earlier in the service, this group of Christ followers. Where are they? They're in this room together. There aren't thousands of them. There's about 120 evangelicals in the world and they can all fit in one room. That's a bad day for the evangelical church, isn't it? They felt weak. They felt so small. And so what did they do when they felt weak? Well, they did the thing that you and I should do when we feel weak. They prayed. And then in Acts chapter 2, God responds. He He sends His Holy Spirit to empower them. And then they begin to share the good news of Jesus with boldness and courage. Their marriages began to turn around because when Jesus comes in, when he restores, when he restores a life, when he renovates a home, things change. People began to be released from their addictions and their sins. People began to flourish in some very interesting ways and they became more generous and more kind and more good. And over the course of three centuries, this little group of 120 grew and changed the known world. Why? Because their weakness drove them to their knees in prayer. In the 1990s, really incredible thing. In the 1990s, there's this place in northern India. It was known as the graveyard of modern missions. It was known as that because missionaries would go and they would try to you know, share the, the truth of Jesus with people, but they just could not get a footing. So missionary after missionary after missionary would come, try, and leave, and nothing would change. But in the early 1990s, this husband and wife, David and Jan Watson, roll into the area, and they look around, and they begin to see what's going on in this place in the northern part of India. 
And David Watson and his wife and the people with him began to ask this one question. It's a really powerful question. It was the wig take question. Wig take. Wig take stands for what's it going to take to reach all these people? What's it going to take to reach this entire area, this entire people group? And for them, that entire area, the entire people group was not a few thousand like what we're trying here, but it was 90 million with an M. So they begin to pray and they begin to ask God, what do we do? What do we do? What do we do? And, 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 and so they start to think, what, what does this look like? And David Watson begins to plan and think, what does this look like? Because, hey, if you're going to reach 90 million, you've got to have a plan for it. And he realized that he couldn't do things the way that the American church has always done things because it's just too big, it's just too expensive, it's just too complex. I mean, if you're going to do it an American way, you've got to get a building, right? You've got to have a building. You've got to pay some guy to come yell at you every Sunday for 30 minutes or longer. And then you've got to get a guy to lead worship, and you've got to raise funds for children and youth programming, and it's just so expensive and complex. And so he said, you know, this just doesn't work. I, I know. I'll do what Jesus told us to do in Matthew chapter 10. And so they began to send people out in teams of two to go and make disciples. And they would go into areas and they would look for a very special person within their community. You remember the kind of person Jesus told us to look for, right? He said, I want you to look for a person of peace. And this is a person who doesn't believe in God necessarily, but it's a person who will open their home and a person who's open to spiritual conversations. And so they began to go in, they began to study the Bible, but they didn't start teaching the Bible. Rather, they would open it and let these people begin to read the Bible for themselves and let the Holy Spirit begin to show them truth that was right for their lens and their culture to understand how it should look in their space and their time. And so they began to see people begin to confess their sins, repent, get baptized And then they would begin to invite other friends and they began to do this as well. And it only made sense that these these little groups of people who were gathering in these homes would begin to gather as churches. And over time, the incredible thing happened. These little groups began to take hold and then they would send out a couple of disciple makers. And they would begin to find people of peace and they would begin to make disciples, read the scriptures, baptizing people. And they began to establish additional churches and so on and so forth until, until this is so incredible to me. Just 20 years later, just within a few short years of all of this, this small group of just a few people who came into the area known as the graveyard of modern missions has radically changed. I saw the most recent report that I saw was that it has grown so much, the growth has been so explosive, they actually had to send research into that area just to get a sense of how many people are coming to faith because it's happening so fast and so big and so quickly. The latest report that I heard said that in just one of the movements, between 8 and 12 million people since the early 90s have come to know Jesus, been baptized, have started meeting in hundreds of thousands of house churches and multiplying across the area that was formerly known as the graveyard of modern missions. Here's the point. Everyone, everyone was able to plant churches. Everyone was able to find a person of peace. Everyone was able to open the scriptures. Everyone was able to say, Jesus is my Lord. He can be your Lord. Everyone was able to step into it because they said, this isn't us working. We're too weak. It's not just for the special people. It's not just for the people with degrees. It's for all of us because we're all weak. We're all in need. None of us can do this on our own. We need God. We need God. And they trusted God to work. 
One of the interesting things about these massive movements that are happening around the globe, by the way, that's what we call these church planting movements where God shows up in a powerful way. We call them movements. But in China, India, and parts of Africa, the church is just exploding. One of the things that you'll find in every one of them, one common characteristic is that in every one of these massive movements of God is that they all rely on extraordinary prayer. They rely on extraordinary prayer. You say, what does that mean? Well, extraordinary prayer doesn't mean that you say a prayer right before you go to bed or right before meals, although, hey, please do that. That's always good. No, no, no. Extraordinary prayer for them. And I'm going to ask you, listen, please, just for the next few moments, gear into this because this is huge. Extraordinary prayer meant that the regular, everyday Christian is spending hours a day in prayer to God. I gotta be honest with you, when I heard that, that put me to shame. I am paid to be good, and I'm not doing that. But I want to. Because I want to see God move in my lifetime. And I know you want to see God move in your lifetime and with your friends and your family. I know you want to see God move in your workplace and in your school. You want to see God make a difference in the lives of your friends. You want to see God work, and it's going to require you and me to notice how weak we are and come to God in extraordinary prayer and say, we can't, but you can because you did, and you can do it again. Dear God, we trust you. And so I'm going to give you a challenge. Are you ready? Here's the challenge, just one challenge. And I'm not going to tell you exactly what to do on this. I'm going to ask you to ask God to tell you what to do. But here's the one challenge. This year, I'm going to ask you to do this. Will you ask God, what does extraordinary prayer look like for me in 2021? What does extraordinary prayer look like for you personally? Not your spouse, not your children, not your girlfriend or your boyfriend, not your parents, not your co-workers, not your preacher, but you personally. What does extraordinary prayer look like for you this year? For some of you, it may mean getting up just a little bit earlier to spend time with God. For others in here, it may mean that you rally around with some co-workers at lunch and you pray together. Or maybe, maybe at school, when you have a moment together, you get together early with some students. Or maybe, for some of us, it's going to be, you're going to join us in our prayer room. We're going to open a prayer room here in a couple weeks. We're going to have some interactive things that you can do. So while your kids are in worship, uh, you know, over here, maybe at 9 30, instead of coming to this, you go to the prayer room. Or maybe while you're in here, you spend the time, instead of singing, you pray. Some of us, we go, I don't sing anyway. Great. Pray during that time. But maybe extraordinary prayer for you is to just simply begin the process of saying, God, I'm weak, but you're strong. I need you today. And believe that he'll show up. See, weakness is not a bad place to be. Because that's where our movement began. It began, as you all know, on a cross with a man who was not simply a man, but he was God himself, but the world had rejected him. And the dark forces allied against him and said, he is weak and he is about to die. This is the end of the movement. And on that cross, our, our good God poured out his blood. His body was broken. And then he cried out with a loud voice, it is finished. And the world shook because it seemed like wickedness had won, that death had conquered. But then just a few days later, on the third day, on a Sunday morning, the power of God was seen. 
And the king of kings stepped forth from the tomb. He kicked the teeth of death in. And he stood forth and said, Now there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See, our movement began in the moment where people thought we were at our weakest, but by the power of God, that was simply the beginning of change. Friend, I don't know where you are this morning. Maybe everything about friends and sharing your faith is not even where you are, but you just need to know that where you are now, if you feel weak in your marriage, this is a point where God can change everything. If you feel weak with your children, this is a place where God can change everything. If you feel weak in your work or in your health or in your spiritual condition, this is where God can change everything. Will you simply confess your weakness and allow him to begin to do a good work?